If you don't understand what's going on, you're liable to get crazy at this point. Okay, bro. All right, bro. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. I don't even know what to do with myself. <laughs> Nobody to tell facts at to react to, though. You know, this is going to be the real problem. That's true. We just have to entertain ourselves. We'll just sit in silence. Just add like three seconds of silence after every fact. <laughs> oh my god, boy! This episode is. Uh, <laughs> I could see why you guys started using guests. <laughs> have, you, have you seen those YouTube videos of like? Uh, oh my god! Why am I blanking out his name? The Big Bang Theory but they remove the laugh track and it's just the most painfully <laughs> awkward silence. These jokes that don't land at all. Yeah, that sounds about right. That show is so weird. It's I, so I, weird. The fact that it found such a broad audience making fun of nerds in ways that don't even make sense to nerds is really just <laughs> yeah. bizarre. They capture the perception of nerds just yeah. that people <laughs> that are not nerds have I guess. <laughs> Either one. Yeah. yeah. Keep laughing. Keep laughing, jackasses. Zuckerberg has all your money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give me your data. <laughs> We're the new lizard people, right? <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. How should we kick this thing off? Just like, what's the little... Ex- oh, I've got a blurb. Explainer. I've got a blurb. So, let's do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very first mini episode. It's the 42nd week of 2020, and we're trying out a new shorter format for weeks where we get busy. Kicking it off by rethinking kidnapping after a militia group attempted to kidnap the governor of Michigan. It's our first minisode. It's our first minisode. Ooh, man. Do I have to speak like twice as fast? Is that definitely. the, yeah, the plan? So, so that when they put it on double speed, it goes a four times speed. <laughs> well, I remain Tyler Giannisini, and I remain here with Kent Yoshimura. I'm ready. Right. With that, Ooh. we'll get into it. So I just took like 15 euro gums. Oh god! Ready to go. <laughs> I just took Minnesota. 15 neuro mints of the variety that's redacted until the end of this month. So Ooh, oh, so, you, <laughs> so we opposite. equalize each other out. Sleepy. <laughs> Feels so mellow, man. Well, yeah. A little bit of a napping <laughs> <laughs> sensation, might you say? <laughs> in case uh anyone was napping over the weekend or in kent's case was blissfully away from the world of news and america's place within that news i don't uh, know anything <laughs> uh a right-wing or two members of two right-wing militia groups attempted to kidnap the governor of michigan this past week i think i believe it's 14 members so the suspects apparently were tied to a single paramilitary group called the Wolverine Watchmen. From what I understand, there is crossover with other right-wing groups, but it's not an action. I guess the the action taken here can't be attributed to those other groups as much as explicitly the Wolverine Watchmen. So in lead up to this event, Trump tweeted Liberate Michigan long, long ago. This was back in April and has been pretty vocal against the governor of Michigan, who, you know, this monstrous woman, I guess, was attempting to get people to wear masks and uh, not, you know, spread the coronavirus. So obviously some freedom fighters had to had to figure out some way to solve it. And now (laughs) 
I guess these guys get together and apparently I've seen with explicit quotes. I don't know uh, from from law enforcement that they were they were interested in starting the civil war. So there was there was all this back and forth about back and forth about oh let's take her you know let's just kidnap her kidnap the bitch or whatever and they started actually planning to do it because oh my gosh because um, they're all on do meth <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're all on meth they spend a lot of time practicing I mean you know if you spend you spent eight years of Obama's presidency just practicing for killing the liberals you're gonna want to you're going to want to take that Chekhov's gun down off the wall at some point and, and shoot somebody with it. So, so I'm looking at a picture of, of this Wolverine, whatchamacallit, and it, they look like guys purity? who... <laughs> this, is, this is just a symbol of racial superiority right here. They look like guys that are really purebred individuals. Purebred in the sense that their uh, moms Super are their purebred. dad's sisters. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh my God. I mean, yeah. I saw a like meme that's are... just like control C, control V, control V, control V, because they just all look like yeah. the same person. It's, it's pretty. It's insane. I don't even know where you find people like this. These are people that show up in pictures of uh, American Horror Story or something in the Freaks episode. Uh, I can't believe people like this exist. A classic sort of men's rights activist look. Look about them. (laughs) Yeah. Picture that and you'll you'll be picturing all of these men. So, yeah. So I guess the they're linked to the boogaloo movement which is if if people are unfamiliar with the boogaloo movement my god it's terrifying these are people who are preparing for and really mostly seem super super stoked for the chance to get into a civil war none of them seem like they're gravely preparing for this civil war because it's you know it's going to be their duty they seem seem pretty excited for the civil war but i guess in part of this the group of 13, 14, 14 suspects as of October 15th. Is that today? Is yesterday? That's crazy. Yeah, I see it like seven hours ago as of seven oh, yeah. hours ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so the news is changing. No wonder I felt like I had the wrong number here. It's continuing to be updated. Uh, so they were caught before this took place. But yes, their plan was to, I think it was something along the lines of just, you know, go up, knock on her door and then just grab her. And... The interesting thing or what this brought to mind for us was just kidnappings in general, the the history in the U.S. of, you know, kidnappings, how they play into our politics. So what's something I learned is actually while we were doing the research for this, there is one historical political kidnapping in this country, which we will get into um, in a little bit here, but this would have been the second. And there's some context to be aware of as we go further here. Oh, so. interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, so to celebrate the second ever kidnapping event in the United States, uh, political kidnapping in the United States, we gathered some of our favorite kidnappings to share with <laughs> all y'all. All of y'all. <laughs> Gosh, these people yep. look like they're on meth and they're just 99% c- 
cousin genetics. It's crazy. Uh, oh yeah. Have you have you heard the term <laughs> Yalkeda? Yalkeda? Oh my god, that's hilarious. Yalkeda is that available? So there's there's actually a, a group called the Base that they just released like 80 hours of this extreme nationalist group called the Base recruiting military personnel, former military. So actively recruiting former military for their right-wing militia and guess what the base translates to uh what (laughs) al-qaeda the base they they picked a good name for patriots you know oh my freaking god well i I can't i can't even look at these these pictures anymore so jump into the first (laughs) kidnapping that (laughs) caught my eye so we've both lived in los angeles and the getty center is nearby and for all of you who don't know, billionaire oil magnate, J. Paul Getty, he is a complete dick. And, <laughs> <laughs> and this kidnapping is a perfect... This, this guy was once the richest man in the world. But this kidnapping story is an example of how much of a dick he was, despite the fact that he was you know, proclaimed by everyone as a business genius. So Cancel the Getty? Cancel the Getty if if we're gonna hold a person that's from a hundred years ago accountable. <laughs> but assholes will always be assholes. When billionaire oil magnate J. Paul Getty's sixteen-year-old grandson John Paul Getty III was snatched off the streets of Rome in the wee hours of July tenth, nineteen seventy-three, Getty, then the world's richest private citizen, didn't budge leaving Paul as a five-month hostage of Italian gangsters who hoped to exhort $17 million for his return. And that $17 million is in 2020 money. At that time, it was $3.2 million, which is still a notable sum. Um, John Paul Getty argued that the 13, his 13 other grandchildren could also become kidnapping victims if he paid up. So <laughs> despite the fact that these kidnappers were playing Russian roulette against the head of the grandson, cutting off his ear and sending it in the mail. Oh. John Paul Getty continued to say no. So it's pretty silly. The, the kidnappers at some point were just, they didn't know what to do with themselves because they were pretty sure they could get the money once they cut the ear off. <laughs> that and, and also, like they have this huge problem to deal with. You can't just cut off someone's ear and expect it to be totally fine. The grandson's health began to d- decline pretty rapidly as his wounds became infected, combined with pneumonia caused by the cold winter temperatures, which were descending. His captors were also alarmed at his sudden decline and gave him large doses of penicillin to treat the infection, which caused him to develop an allergy to the antibiotic and further affected his health. <laughs> Getty's biographer, John Pearson, attributed his later alcoholism to the large amount of brandy that he was plied with in the last few months of his captivity to keep him warm and numb his pain. So they made him an alcoholic. These kidnappers, yeah, turned him into an alcoholic, cut off his ear, did all this stuff, but all that damage that was done by them is nothing compared to the lack of love a grandfather gave the grandson. And <laughs> what's crazy is at the very end, you know, the thing is John Paul Getty probably wouldn't have saved his grandson if it weren't for a tax loophole. So in the end, what saved the grandson was a tax loophole through which Getty found that he could write off a portion of the $2.89 million bargained down ransom. <laughs> he bargained it down. Um, 
which he eventually paid. And then he designated this as a loan to his son, John Paul Getty II, the father of John Paul Getty III, to be paid off at a 4% interest rate. So, Dude's got your name, man. <laughs> what is wrong with people? This guy's the richest private citizen in the world. He probably has way more than $17 million lying around <laughs> and decides to charge his son interest because he gets kidnapped. It's like, wow. This is, this is why we need more freedom. So men like this can make, make uh, really generous decisions like this. <laughs> I'm just curious. Like, what do you think he would have said if he got kidnapped? Do you think he would have still remained logical and been like, okay, yeah, uh, don't pay up the ransom. You can negotiate it down. What if all your other grandparents got kidnapped because see I got you, kidnapped being paid? See if you can get someone to pay it off at 4% interest over time. <laughs> That's crazy. Wow. I loved it for the fact that I, I am very curious if any other stingy bastard out there would do the same thing. Because if, if this isn't the definition of stinginess, then I don't know what is. So he did get out. The, the ransom did get paid. It got uh, paid, but it had to get paid back to the grandpa at a 4% interest amazing, rate. Amazing. So what's, what's really sad, though, is so the grandson, you know, at 18, traumatized, went to get married to his girlfriend. Uh, at the time, we then became pregnant with his son. But at the age of 25, of course, afflicted by all this trauma, he overdosed on drugs, which caused a stroke that left him quadriplegic and partially blind. Oh. He died in 2011, uh, being quadriplegic and partially blind for the rest of his life. So, wow, that kid did not have a good life. That's rough. You would think that being born the child of of a billionaire, like the world's wealthiest private citizen, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd have it made unless you get kidnapped. Yeah, so let that be a lesson to all you rich little... Goody two shoes. <laughs> Don't get kidnapped. Yeah. Oh, what's the uh, Don Jr. Don Jr. <laughs> Baron. I just keep hearing your kidnapped. dad has tons of money. I just keep hearing you guys. Guys just keep saying how wealthy your family is. I got you tremendous people. There. You got to be careful. You got to be careful. I got tremendous kidnappers. I got tremendous kidnappers. <laughs> got the best kidnappers. <laughs> Everyone Look says so. Our kidnappers have the best ratings. <laughs> well, yeah, the leading off of that, another grandchild of a, an impossibly wealthy person in America who got kidnapped is the first political kidnapping victim in American history. Um, and so I think I think the Gretchen Whitmer event does not count as a second because it was unsuccessful. I don't know. I'm sure we've had other attempts at some point in history. So. You know, we have yet to hit that second one. Let's hope we don't get there. But there's some interesting parallels th between the Patty Hearst times and our current times. Primarily that the country was kind of in shambles. We're, we're looking at the near the end of the Vietnam War. 
as some background on who William Randolph Hearst is, if you're unaware, he's an American businessman, newspaper publisher, and politician who lived from 1863 to 1951. He was basically the newspaper guy, the media guy. So if, yeah, you know, Rupert Murdoch of this day, the, the Hearst family was known for their sensational journalism. They're kind of, they're kind of the Fox news of that era. I don't know if wow. they had a specific, I mean, my, my context is based around this kidnapping, which seems to imply that they were probably similarly conservative with Fox news, but I don't actually know how they were interpreted and the parties weren't really equivalent to what they are today, you know, 50 plus years ago. So something to consider. Um, he was the child of a senator and a guy who got rich from mining, gold mining. Like, I think that's the, the OG rich Hearst. William Randolph Hearst has, has a uh, son who graduates from Harvard in 1938. Randolph Hearst, who is the father of Patricia Hearst, who um, we'll get into in a second here, but I do want to give some background of the way the world was back then, because to me, it was news. And I assume to a lot of our audience, it may also be news. So pull this quote that is, we live today in the shadow of ISIS and Al Qaeda, and the threat of random bombings haunt both the public and the government that is supposed to protect us. But the threat of a bombing was far greater in, 1970, in the 1970s. And these weren't just threats, they were reality. There were more than 1,000 politically inspired bombings every year in the United States during the early part of Holy the 70s. Shit. And politically inspired violence became a fact of everyday life. So the kidnapping of Patty Hearst was aberrational, but not that far afield from what was already happening. And that alone was a sign of how close our country was in those days to a collective nervous breakdown. Wow. So, so basically, we're like reliving that. The, whatever that higher level idea of like a Vietnam era consciousness of fear. Correct. Uh, it's just repeating itself in the 2020s. Correct. Like, I where don't... do they get these bombs? Like, what, what are these just, I mean, I think They're about like the Kent them. State, the Kent yeah. State shootings, or I don't know when the Oklahoma City, the Unabomber was, Tech Desinski. I think but, 94. So that was actually much later, I guess. But yeah. it's, it's pretty crazy. Like, you know, the Unabombers. So I, I just pulled them up. A lot of this mentality did seem to start from the 1970s. He's this math prodigy, uh, a former mathematics professor from Harvard, this genius guy. And then in 1969, he just abandoned all of it to pursue a more primitive lifestyle. And I mean, stress does build up. Yeah. Anxiety builds up. One thing that the podcast that I was listening to to research for this noted was that we hear these, you know, the number of like a thousand bombings sounds really significant. One crucial difference. Usually this is a we're going to bomb this place in the middle of the night when we know nobody's there. If we do it during the day, we're going to call ahead and tell everybody to get out of the building because a bomb's going to go off in three hours. You know, there's the effort is not to kill people. It's to scare people, which, you know, <laughs> <laughs> whether you feel like that's a significant line in the sand to draw, it is something worth noting about, you know, I don't think a thousand bombings a year and each one is killing like 35 people or, or a thousand people. They're, they're intended 
to send a message, not really kill or injure people for the most part. That is not the same across the board. There are certainly extreme groups back then. So the beginning of this sort of starts in 1971, a protester who's been arrested and released eight times. California Donald De- Californian Donald DeFries is sent to Vacaville prison. He joins the prisoners Black Cultural Association and African Nationalist Educational and Discussion Group. DeFries rejects his slave name and calls himself himself Sink. Or Sink you? What does it even so, mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he essentially this arrested and released eight times is him starting to feel like, okay, aggressive protest maybe isn't enough. We can't just we can't just get out there and protest. And, you know, there needs to be some level of violence. So in 1972, police discover a massive bomb factory in a Berkeley garage rented by Wendy Yoshimura. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Mom, no. If the police arrest three armed men who enter the garage. Wendy Yoshimura escapes the arrest. They also find a ready-to-mail communique from the Revolutionary Army claiming credit for an arson bombing of the UC Berkeley Naval Architecture Building that was scheduled for that night. So they actually, they did have people looking into things like this back then, and they were actually able to stop one of these bombings. They also found detailed notes for what seems to be a plan to kidnap or assassinate the former Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, in his Aspen, Colorado chalet. So this concept of using a kidnapping or an assassination to send a political message is in the works. But it's so common and happens so frequently that people are, in fact, already looking out for it. And I guess that's the case with now. There's a repository for basically everyone, whether you want to believe it or not, uh, held by the government and the FBI and all these data centers. And right. they are tracking the things we say and probably flagging them. I, I, I mean, I'd be very curious to see at what extent they were tracking it back then when technology wasn't as intensive. But yeah, how they were able to. Still pretty crazy. Yeah. So we hit 1973. Things are continuing to heat up. DeFreeze escapes from Soledad and heads to Berkeley. He's directed by some friends to a radical safe house where he's taken in and uh, people he meets begin to organize a revolutionary group they are going to call the Symbionese Liberation Army, who believe a timely example will spark revolt in Black America. So mm. much like we're looking at with this group that was aiming to kidnap the governor. They believed that doing so would kick off and cause other people to follow suit in this sort of revolution, anti-government revolution. It, wow. It's interesting to see the the comparison also between this, this revolt in black America and what we're seeing with the black lives matters movement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so, it's so similar, probably not in what actions were taken but definitely in regards to sensibilities. Right. The goals of the group were closing prisons, ending monogamy, (laughs) destroying all other institutions that have made and sustained capitalism. So they are very much a socialist, communist, very far left ideology uh, group. Ending monogamy, huh? (laughs) All right. (laughs) That's an important one. That's the important one. Yeah. (laughs) We've got all these other points, but ending monogamy, that's... We always come back to that. That's number one. Also uh, legalize <laughs> marijuana. <laughs> Am I right, fellas? 
In October, white residents of San Francisco begin to be terrorized by a series of random racially motivated attacks that claim 15 lives, leaving another eight victims wounded or raped. The perpetrators, the zebra killers, are rumored to be members of a black Muslim spinter group called the Death Angels that require the murder of white people as a form of initiation. Holy shit, that's so intense. White people, if you are clutching your pearls currently, remember, it could be much worse. (laughs) <laughs> yeah you could you could get kidnapped by a bunch of uh wonky looking white dudes also <laughs> and in the beginning of 1974 on february 4th hearst newspaper heiress patricia campbell hearst a 19 year old berkeley student is kidnapped three members wow. of the sla force their way into her apartment badly beating her fiance stephen weed and abducting patty hearst her armed kidnappers then keep her locked in a closet for the beginning of her experience with the SLA. That's what you get for being monogamous. monogamous. <laughs> also, your fiance's last name is Weed. <laughs> we, we were expecting a lot more cannabis in your home. I apologize. So terrifying, right? Like, you know, just rich heiress is is just pulled out of her home they knew they were targeting her though they knew it's like oh this is the daughter of the very wealthy hearst family and yes. we're gonna make an example yes the specifically their plan here is to kidnap her and force her family to now now this is really gonna make our conservative fans clutch their pearls but they want them to use their money to feed the poor so Donald DeFries makes a demand for food to be distributed to poor people in the area and throughout the country. February 12th, we get a recording from Patty. So eight days after the kidnapping, she sends a recording saying she's okay. Four days after that, she's asking her parents on another recording to stop acting like I'm dead. DeFries says the SLA is looking for a good faith gesture and... Patty says, whatever you come up with is basically okay. She's essentially saying, give them something. You got to give them something. February 19th, Hearst announces that he will create the People in Need Food Distribution Program that expects the program to be able to feed 100,000 people for 12 months with $2 million. February 22nd, the first day of food distribution starts and ends in riots. And Patty Hearst is now criticizing her parents saying, I don't believe that you're doing anything at all. She's drinking the Kool-Aid. She's she's full of Kool-Aid. Things start getting pretty interesting from here. So she's been with them just about a month, just over a month. And she's kind of turning on her parents. In a fifth tape recording, Patty Hearst denounces her family and claims allegiance to the SLA. She takes the gorilla name Tanya. Her family claims she has been brainwashed, which people thought was a real thing back then. Yeah. Uh, So just a little over 60 days after the kidnapping, an unnoticed manager at the Sunset Branch of the Hibernia Bank flips a security camera switch. Patty Hearst and four members of the SLA are caught on camera holding up the bank at gunpoint. The the bank robbers get away with $10,000. So after two months of captivity, they're handing her firearms and she's helping them rob a bank. Nice. Uh, She will later claim that someone had a gun on her and she was forced to do this. I wouldn't bring that liability on a bank on a bank robbery. They seem pretty strategic. I would think that if they didn't know for sure she was with them, they that she would probably not be along for that. Where's Stephen Weed in all this? Where's your fiance? 
He's just kind of like, yeah, dude, this. Yeah, like he's, he's uh, nursing his wounds. I dodged a bullet. <laughs> yeah, like she, yeah, no, yeah, this no goes kidding. crazy. Yeah. So at this point, Americans across the country are now they're wondering, okay, what's going on here? Is she is she really one of them? Is the is does she really participate? Has she been brainwashed? What's the deal? Six audio tape shows up in on April twenty fourth, and. Patty offers evidence of her full participation in the bank robbery. She says at no point did her comrades point a gun at her. She refers to her family as the pig hursts and to Stephen, her fiance, as an ageist, sexist pig. She says the idea of her being brainwashed is ridiculous. May 16th. She's sitting in a car when uh, two members of the SLA enter a store. She sees a fight between one of the members and the store clerk. She sees this happening, and to prevent them from being arrested, she shoots 27 30 caliber bullets into the storefront. A raid the next day, it almost seems like a publicity stunt. The SLA starts firing, SWAT teams start firing back. We've got now a gunfight in the streets between the LAPD and the SLA. Police set the house on fire with gas canisters. The place catches on fire. All six members of the SLA wind up dead for several hours. There's confusion about whether or not Patty Hearst is in there. Berkeley students are uh, rallying support for the SLA. On a seventh message, Patty Hearst offers a eulogy for those killed in the shootout. She proclaims her love for Willie Wolf and vows that the SLA will continue its fights. Then things get quiet for a bit. On January 2nd of 1975, there is no news of Patty as the date for the final ransom payment of $2 million passes. April 21st, four members of the SLA hold up Crocker Bank in Carmichael, California. A 42-year-old bystander, mother of two, is there to deposit church collection money, is shot and killed. On September 18th of 1975, so she's now been with the SLA for a year, SLA members... Patty Hearst, Bill and Emily Harris, and Wendy Yoshimura are arrested in San Francisco. When asked for her occupation while being booked, Hearst says, urban gorilla. So now you know the the sort of timeline of events of her kidnapping and where things, I think, get on a very high level controversial. She goes to trial, and of course, she's the child of a wealthy person. And so she's got a great lawyer who's mainly focused on saying, you know, she was brainwashed, you know, none of this is her fault. Fortunately, the the jury rejects her claim that she was under duress and immediate threat for a full 18 months. And I believe she f- sent, uh, is sentenced to seven years in prison. However, in 1979, on February 1st, 22 months into her seven-year punishment, Patty Hearst has her sentence commuted by President Jimmy Carter. So she's released. Someone had the right friends or right relationship with President yeah, Carter. Be, uh, and, good to be a rich white woman. <laughs> yeah. 22 years later, President Bill Clinton issues a presidential pardon okay. to Patty Hearst as well. Freaking sax man coming out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think to this day, it's still in question of whether or not she, she was willfully cooperating. Yeah, this seems like it's one of the most popular cases of Stockholm Syndrome that have existed within American history. And it's always interesting to see that whether it's good intentions or not that a lot of these emotionally charged revolutionary groups start out with, it always ends in 
violence and chaos to some degree. I, I wonder if there's like where that middle ground could have and, and that line could have been drawn because starting a gunfight outside of of a liquor store that's like come on yeah. what yeah. what are you fighting for at that point right yeah it's 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 a pretty wild account of a very weird weird time she's pretty mums the word because obviously she's she's mm-hmm. been living on the story that it wasn't her fault and and she was she was coerced the entire time. It sounds like a person that's not owning up to their own problems. And I think about like myself when I was 19, I was definitely an idiot. I'm still an idiot, but definitely a much more malleable idiot. And totally. If you grow up in a wealthy family and you go to a school like UC Berkeley, where this idea of wealth is always kind of looked down upon in some weird way, there's probably so many insecurities that she was already developing that led to her getting molded into bank robbing Patty Hearst. Right. So, so that, that is the saga of Patty Hearst, I guess, as a, as a comparison to today's most recent attempted political kidnapping. Notable that she wasn't a politician of it. It was just about money yeah. and, and getting the person who had the money to do the thing, the political things you wanted. I mean, it would have been enough. Not funny. It would have been funny. It would have been funny. If the governor of Michigan got kidnapped and then next week you see her like yeehawing down the oh, road with yeah. an ATV. Riding an ATV with a, a gang of um, of kids on a motorbikes. Just oh, yeah. Like, that would be kind of funny. That's kind of cool. Like that's what 2020 could use. <laughs> but uh, oh, no. Freaking FBI stops it before any of that happens. Thanks, guys. This uh, just because it's it's relevant. And I keep seeing news about it. So, are you are are you familiar with the like the the, the story of what's what went on with Michael Reinal, the guy who shot the right wing counter protester in Portland? Oh, yeah. Uh, Trump has mentioned him a couple of times. I know uh, of him. I don't know the full story behind him. So this is, I, I think, I think it's important. So I'm just going to talk about it because I, I think that, you know, sure. if anybody doesn't know about it, they should, they should hear about it. The the guy, he, he gave an interview to vice and claims that he shot the other guy because it was in self-defense of himself or his friend. I don't necessarily believe him, but whether or not you believe the guy or believe that his actions were right or wrong, which I think shooting someone is generally pretty wrong mm-hmm. for the most part. What happens next is he goes on the run and is found in Lacey, very near where I live. And plainclothes officers show up, pump 37 bullets into him. Witnesses witnesses claim they could not tell that the vehicles were police vehicles. They claim they could not tell that the police were police. And they claim that the police did not announce any intent to arrest. So as far as this guy is concerned, the right wingers found him and they're about to kill him. So he's found with a pistol in his pocket that the police claim he reached for. But no matter what, what's important is they executed a person without a trial, any privilege of having use of the justice system. That's terrifying. That is, that is a very scary power for 
the United States government to be able to have, whether you're left or right wing, you do not want the executive branch to be able to send people in plain clothes to shoot you in the street, which is where they shot him. So important to look into. Again, I, you know, I, I, I always say I'm a pretty unapologetic lefty and I, I'm super skeptical of, of this guy and whether or not he really had any reason to shoot the person he shot in Portland totally irrelevant to whether or not you think that the executive branch should have the ability to execute people on U.S. soil. So that's like uh, the Kent State shootings of 2.0, even more conspicuous way. It's it's weird. I'm pretty wild. People should be aware of it. It uh, it didn't get a lot of coverage, but people should be this generation's Patty Hearst. It's probably already (laughs) happening. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, you know, to close it off, because we were looking at other kidnappings, some notable mentions were uh, Frank Sinatra Jr., who, (laughs) this one's pretty funny, the the kidnapper who was high as fuck on drugs, (laughs) be this noble thing to kidnap Frank Sinatra Jr. because it will bring the Sinatra family together. But, of course, (laughs) kidnapping anyone is uh, not a good idea. Funny enough... (laughs) He later went on to become a very successful entrepreneur, opening up a bunch of rehab centers. So he turned his life around. Good for him. The Charlie Ross case from 1874. This is where the adage, don't take candies from a stranger came from. But a very, very badly written note was left at the crime scene when a baby was taken away, lured by candy. That baby was never found, however. And the last one, Tales from Asia, not America, is the story of Walter Kwok, the eldest son of a Hong Kong real estate developer. He, Walter Kwok was kidnapped in 1997 by the notorious local gangster Big Spender, then kept blindfolded in a wooden container for four grueling days. In order to free him, Kwok's father paid one of the largest ransoms in history, over half a billion dollars oh in cash. Oh my God. <laughs> That's crazy. So... Fortunately, the big spender was arrested shortly afterwards and executed following a trial on the Chinese mainland. Kwok, meanwhile, resumed his role in his father's empire and went on to become one of the world's 200 richest individuals. So that half a billion paid off, I guess. What an investment. Invest in your children, folks. In the future. (laughs) Yeah. If they get kidnapped, pay for them. So they don't die (laughs) as a quadriplegic later on in life. Yeah, start like a, a GoFundMe <laughs> or whatever for, you know, you'll get that ransom money back. People yeah, feel yeah, bad. yeah, exactly. Always start a GoFundMe. That's the lesson <laughs> to be learned. If you're a kidnapper, start a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter. <laughs> to close if it this off. campaign reaches <laughs> $2 billion, I'll, I'll give back the person I kidnapped. <laughs> like, I don't even know this person. <laughs> this is against Doesn't the terms matter. of service. So to close it off, we always love weird humanoid encounter stories. And this is a story that was sent to us by Marilee, who was a guest a few episodes ago. This is the weird encounter of the week from our humanoid encounters. A strange encounter that happened at Cimarron State Park. So here we go. Me and my girlfriend went to Eagle Nest, New Mexico to do some salmon and trout fishing. But by the time we got settled in, it was already too dark. So I had the bright idea to go hiking in this dark with only flashlights provided by our phones. I checked Google Maps and saw that they had some trails along the river in Cimarron State Park. 
We went along Toby Trail and went around a half mile up and decided to turn around because we started hearing noises and felt a little uneasy. As we were heading back, my girlfriend stopped and listened and said she swears she heard something and shines her light toward the forward part of the trail. And I do the same. We both see a huge gray figure that is way bigger than a bear and just bolt, running for 20 seconds and looking back and it's still keeping up with us. It then makes a horrible deep sound that was about the mixture of a sheep, goat, and a ram at the same time. Those all seem like very similar animals, but... I know. You know. <laughs> I feel like they could have had a better description, but we'll keep going. We make it back to the truck safely, but then we decide to pull back to the gate, to the trail, to see if there's still a sign of it there. But only see a man on a horse that we didn't notice when we were running back. Ooh, suspicious. He never asked us what we were running from or yelling at, and the horse was brown, so it couldn't have been that. We are both confused on what it could have been. We didn't notice any eye reflection when we shined towards it, and I swear it made no sounds when it was following us. It didn't even look like a Wendigo or a Skinwalker. It was way too large. If anyone knows what it could have been, please let us know. Anyone of our fans from New Mexico, if you encounter this weird beast, we want to know what it is. So don't get, guys, don't get kidnapped by a humanoid. You don't know what they would ask for. Yeah, you actually, a, a way to look out for kidnappers seems to be look out for that camo. <laughs> Watch <laughs> yeah. for camo. You may be in danger. <laughs> you just never know. Oh my gosh, the pagan ways. <sighs> Watch out for freedom fighters with no masks. They're coming for you. All right. Oh. Minisode. Yeah, minisode. <laughs> Well, yeah, I suppose that's been our show. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week with our very 28th episode. Woo! Back to the track. Full end. Director's cut. This tape recording, which purports to be an interview or a statement which includes uh, somebody from the SLA and also the voice of Patricia Hurst. I renounce my class privilege, and I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like the Hursts. Patria o muerte, pensaremos. Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. <laughs>